Uh, welcome, my name is Kyle and I spill drinks on myself. Um, but I'm also very happy to be bringing you guys uh, the start of our uh, new series entitled More Than Able, uh, which is also the theme that we have for this year at our church in 2024. Um, the leadership team and some wise counsel have felt that God is drawing us in this, uh, this direction and, and we're excited and expectant for what uh, lies ahead in the year. So obviously we have our church vision, um, which is to build disciples who represent Jesus to everyone, everywhere, with everything. So our core mission will always be the Great Commission. The final call of Jesus is to make disciples and that will always be the core of what we are doing. Um, so we, our, our vision, our church vision, reflects that call of Jesus. Our ministries that we run are, are viewed through the lens of whether they are a disciple-making ministry or not. Our metrics are viewed through the lens of whether we are making disciples. And then if we are making disciples, what kind of disciples are we making? So disciple-making is our vision and is what we do. And we believe that our, our theme for this year, More Than Able, speaks right into our vision because we believe that to become a follower of Jesus requires a work in us that only God can do. That only God can do the work in us to make us a follower of Jesus. Only God is able to change lives. Only God is able to redeem families. Only God is able to move a nation. And so this series that we're starting now is setting us up for the rest of the year. Um, and it's broken up into four parts. Um, the first two messages are, I guess, what you'd sort of see as more like foundational messages. And it's going to be followed by two messages that are a bit more vision, a bit more implication. Um, and I guess it's all fine and dandy to, to know something and to believe something, that it's true. But if that thing that you believe doesn't actually change how you act and how you think then that truth, I guess, doesn't really mean a whole lot to you. Um, and so that's what the vision, the implication sort of side of things uh, talks about. And um, to help you with your, your life groups as well, we've created a, a little life group manual. There are some, some analog ones out in the, the foyer. There's about 50 of them. There are also digital copies that have been sent to everyone who's registered to our church newsletter, so you can get it online um, and save a whole lot of trees. But we all really like the paper ones, so getting quick because there's only 50, and if they go really quick, we'll print some more for next week, but these bad boys are out the front. Um, they'll make a great housewarming gift if you need something. Um, and so um, as we go through this passage, there is, uh, sorry, as we go through the series, there is a main passage that we're going to be using for the series, and so I'm going to read through that now. So if you want to open your Bibles or unlock your phones and read with me from Ephesians chapter 3. So this will be like our core text for the, the whole series, and I'm going to read through the whole thing in totality now. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 6 to 21. <clears throat> and this is what it says. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body, and both enjoy the promise of blessing because they belong to Jesus Christ. By God's grace and mighty power... I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading the good news. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please don't lose heart because of my trials here. I am suffering for you, so you should feel honored. That's a good way to, if you're ever feeling bad, you can just let people know, I'm suffering for you. You should feel honored. And when I think of all of this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down deep into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it be too great to understand fully. And then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. Now all glory to God, who is able, through his mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all the generations, forever and ever. Amen. So that is our core text, which all the sort of sermons are going to be based around in some way or another. And it's a really, really powerful passage of scripture. And, and we, have, we have great anticipation for what that will mean for us. Obviously, uh, one of the main statements, one of the main verses that really pops out of the passage is the last two verses. Now, all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's the, you know, the big statement piece that we get really excited about. And it can, be easy, it can be easy to get either, I guess, really excited about this statement and try, start trusting God uh, to do everything that you want, or you can go the other way and get a little bit, I guess, skeptical and start to question why you would believe God can do anything, anything at all, really. And these verses, I guess, sometimes can feel like a bit of like a rah-rah verse, like the cheerleading verse. They're like, they get you all excited, and there's fireworks, and people sort of grab onto each other's arms and whisper about like, oh, all the good things that God can do. Let's start thinking. Like, I'm assuming nobody here won the 200 million hats lottery the other day. Like, oh, but maybe God can do it next time it comes around. Oh, you know, you get all excited about what he can do. But then also, there's this other category of like, you know, grabbing each other and whispering and be like, well, why would we believe that God can do amazing things? Like, what, what, why would we even think that to start with? Like, what, what's our foundation and our reason for thinking these things? And I think the best place for us to start is actually found in the earlier verses. Uh, verse 14 and 15. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and earth. And so this week, I'm going to walk us through uh, well, I want to walk us through what I feel is like a reason to believe. This week is more like a, a theological reason to believe that statement that God is more than able. Uh, and then next week is a, more of a historical reason to believe in the statement that God is more than able. Because I don't think that this is actually just wishful thinking. Like, I don't think this is wishful thinking at all. This isn't just like blow out your candles and hope that you have a good year type of thinking. Like, I don't want this to be surface-level belief. I want this to be, I am ready to build my life upon and build my life around type of belief. I want us to trust this with every part of our being. Uh, Matthew Crocker writes, 
Someone can have a lot of knowledge about God, can read all the right things on God, can even do and say all the right prayers and the rituals without ever believing in God at all. Saying, I believe in God, under this rubric or title or manner, is no different than saying, I believe that the earth revolves around the sun. Yes, it's a mere fact that some people can believe in the wrong way, and it fails to produce anything in your life. Uh, The late J.J. Packer, in his book Knowing God, he writes, A little bit of knowledge of God is worth a great deal more than knowledge about God. A little bit of knowledge of God, to know God, is worth more than knowing a great deal about God. So what we learn about God needs to lead us then into a deepening relationship with God. What we learn about God needs to grow our relationship with God, needs to grow our obedience to God, needs to grow our submission to God, not just grow our knowledge of God. And with this in mind, we're going to dive into what we believe about God. Why would we believe, as the verse in Ephesians says, that God is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. So what we're going to do is we are going to start at the beginning, and I'm going to read the entire Bible right now. Don't worry, they got me because I preach short, so don't. So the Bible teaches us that in the beginning there was... Oh, goodness me. Well, let's actually go to the Bible. Let's start. No, no. In the beginning there was... God. That's right, not a God... Not God's plural, God. And which God? The God of the Bible. And the only God of the Bible. The Bible teaches that God was existing in the beginning in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, commonly known as the Trinity. The opening words of the Bible are, in the beginning, God. So, you're probably wondering what these are for? Me too. No, I actually know, because I blew them up. So, right here. This, I'm going to block a lot of your screens, so I apologize to everyone in the tech and Panin. Um, So this balloon here uh, is going to represent God. Unique, overall, none like him. And in all of his infinite wisdom and all of his kindness, God created humanity. In fact, we believe that God is the author of all life. God set it all into motion. Because if God is not in control of all life, then God is not in control at all. A racing car driver isn't in control of the race. Uh, They are in control of how they drive, but they are not in control of how the car is going to handle. They are not in control of the track conditions and the weather. They are not in control of what the pit crew are going to do. They are not in control of what the other races are going to do. They can only control their driving. But God, he is in control of it all. Because if he wasn't, he would not be God. There he is. At the start, that balloon, that's obviously not the scale. Um, Here he is at the start, in control of it all. And Genesis 1.30 says, And I have given every green plant as food for all the wild animals, the birds of the sky, the small animals that scurry along with the ground, everything that has life. And that is what happened. God starting it all in the beginning. And in this creation, God placed humans, people, That's what these bad boys are. So, let's place these guys over here. This is us. Now I'm blocking literally everyone's view. Perfect. So we have God. Actually, let's put them a bit closer together. We liked each other in the beginning, didn't we? There we go. So these balloons are us, people. Genesis 1, 26 and 28 to 28 said, 
Then God said, let us make human beings in our image, to be like us. So there's a reference to the Trinity there. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wilds of the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So if you're having problems with animals in your house, you can just point to them and say, I reign over you. (laughs) And so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he blessed them. And then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. That's why there's three. Um, Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the seas, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So, let's pretend that these smaller balloons represent humanity. The the Bible lets us know that people were not the only thing that God set into motion. But people hold a very special place in creation. Because people are the image bearers of God. There is all of creation in heaven and on earth, and then there is humanity. And humanity is the only part of creation that is made in the image of God. The image of God, or Imago Dei in Latin, that you'll probably read in a lot of the uh, theological books that you dig up, it is this common term used to mean that there is something unique, there is something special about the way that humans have been made. Even though we are not little gods ourselves, we are not God just in a smaller form, we have been made in such a way that we share a nature with God. We have been made in such a way that we share a nature with God in how we can interact with morality, spirituality, intellect. There are special characteristics that humans share with God that the rest of creation does not. There is an ability to have a relationship with God, to have creative freedom and control over the rest of creation. And we have this ability to know that there is more to life than what just meets the eye. So here we have this connection, God and humanity, this wonderful and perfect relationship. And within this relationship, we, we know that we did not begin anything. We did not create anything, but rather we were in, we were the recipients of life. We were the recipients of creation. God moved first. God started things. And we also understand within this creation that we are not able to do the things that God can do. We understand what God has done. We can enjoy what God has done, but we cannot do what God has done. There are characteristics of God in us, but we are not God. So it sounds great, right? Yes, we're all good, and everyone lived happily ever after. That's how Genesis ends. I'm joking, except it didn't. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy 32.4, it says this, He, God, is the rock, not that guy. Um, He is the rock. His deeds are perfect. Everything he does is fair and just. He is a faithful God who does no wrong, how just and upright he is. So keep that in mind about God, okay? In Genesis, we read that there is a breaking of relationship between people and God. There was a disobedience, a mistrust, a lying. And now of these beings here on stage, the perfect God and the created humanity, who do you think did the breaking of that relationship? The answer is... Us, obviously. It was us. And so we actually stepped away from God. We are now, now I'm definitely blocking the stage. We are over here. We have moved ourselves away from perfect relationship and perfect connection with Jesus. We have stepped away from perfect unity with God. And in the third chapter of Genesis, we see that humanity 
breaks the perfect covenant relationship with God through rebellion, through pride, through disobedience. And we call this sin. People sinned. We stopped trusting God and they have stopped having a perfect connection and relationship with a perfect God. I'm not sure if you guys, if we all understand and take sin seriously, but let me unpack some, uh, I guess, logical, logical steps here for you. So, imagine you are in outer space, okay? And there is one big container that contains all the oxygen that you'll ever need. It is the only place that the oxygen is found in this one massive container. And as long as you are connected to that big oxygen tank, you have all the things that you need to survive in outer space. But then you decide that there are other things other than oxygen that you want to be connected to in outer space. And so you disconnect. What happens when you disconnect and remove yourself from the very thing that brings you life? I'm using this as a bit of an analogy here, but it's actually not that analogous. Because in reality, we do believe that God brought life into existence. And that it is only through a connection with him that we can experience life as it is meant to be. And so what happens when we remove the very essence, when we remove ourselves from the very thing that is bringing life? Death? Decay? Rot? What happens to us when the very essence, the very image of God that we are made to be in, and we move away from God? What do you think happens to us? Oh, don't? Don't? Whoa, oh, goodness. Some commentaries I've read have said it this way. Some people treat sin the way we treat high cholesterol. They know that if we ignore it, things will go badly, but they hope that they can take certain basic measures to keep it under control. Others think that the solution is just a matter of discipline. Those who treat sin as if it were a disease that can be cured through treatment, those who see sin as a lack of discipline that can be eliminated through education and training... But the Bible views sin differently. Sin is more than just a disease or a failure of discipline. It is a condition of guilt and a deeply ingrained moral bent. Sin is more than a disease or a failure of discipline. Ever since Adam, human beings have been wired for sin. See, the thing is, we are inheriting our sinful condition. We are born into a world where our parents and their parents and their parents and their parents have substituted the oxygen tank that was giving them life for something else. And this passes on from one generation to another. And not only does it affect us, but it affects the world around us. It affects creation. It affects society. It affects the economy. It affects government. It affects culture. All of it is affected. Romans 5.12 says, and, the, and when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. And Isaiah 53.6a says, All of us, all of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. And so sin, sin is the new normal. It was never meant to be this way. We are not designed to live this way. But this is what we have chosen. And this is what we have created. And I guess you may ask, like, why, why would God 
ever allow us to sin in the first place? Like, he's in control. Why would God allow separation and sin and death to be an option? And there's a whole lot of theology I could use here to try and unpack it, and then I'll just confuse myself. So I'm going to fill this answer with what I think is a really simple answer. Without choice, there is no real love. Without the option to not love, there is no option to love. All right, let me unpack it this way. Okay, so I say to Pastor Paul, if you love me, do whatever you want. Now, can he, shows me, can he show me that he loves me or not? If you love me, do whatever you want. He can jump, he can sit, he can lay down, he can walk out and go get a coffee. It, you know, cool. It doesn't prove anything because there's nothing there to prove. But if I say, if you love me, I want you to sit down. Then, Pastor Paul has the option to prove that he loves me, or he has the option to show that he doesn't. When you do not have a choice, you do not have the option to show someone that you love them. Without choice, there is no true love. With choice comes the chance to show love. If we are going to choose to obey God and love God, then there needs to be the opportunity to actually choose that. There's this whole big discussion about free will and God's sovereignty and all that, and it's not worth the time it takes to explain it. But without choice, there is no real love. Okay, so we're here. We're Isaiah 53, 6a, and it says, All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's plan to follow our our own. And so there's two natural, instinctual things that we would say we should do next. Uh, These are the things that could probably happen next. And the first one is uh, that we would fix ourselves. So there's a problem. We should fix ourselves. So let me demonstrate what fixing ourselves looks like in balloon form. Oh, I see. This bit, yes, this bit. There we go. Here we go. (laughs) This is the equivalent of us fixing ourselves. We try and reproduce what can only be found in God. And because it is something being reproduced from us, it will only ever be this ineffective and useless substitute for the real thing. We are not the creator, we are the created. So we cannot manufacture the real things that we need. We can manipulate what has been given to us, we can manipulate what is already here, and we can try and create these, I guess, makeshift replicas there you go. We can try and create these makeshift replicas of what, you know, what we once had. But there's no way that we can do what only God can do. In John 10.10 10, we read that Jesus has come to give life and life to the full. And we can't do that ourselves. We can't give life to the full. But we can pretend by creating benchmarks on what would be a satisfying life. Uh, which, by the way, most of the actual world can't even reach the benchmarks that we create for ourselves to dictate what is a satisfying life. Last year, 1.1 billion people lived in acute, multidimensional poverty. So, let's create all the ways that we think we would have a satisfying life. Like, we, we put those benchmarks on ourselves, even though we can't reach those benchmarks. Think of all the ways that you could describe what a satisfying life is, apart from what your faith tells you, and then tell me how many people can even reach that level. 
We cannot create life to the full. And John 14, 27 shares Jesus' words where he says, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give you is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be afraid or troubled. We can't create our own peace, not internally or externally. How many different ways do we try and trick ourselves into peace before we realize that we cannot create the peace that we need? Don't worry. Be happy. Chill, dude. You do you. Stress less. Center yourself. Lose yourself. Find yourself. Be yourself. Be someone else. I don't know. But it doesn't work. And don't get me started on external peace. Malpractice, corruption, abuse, wars. You'd think that if we had the answer within our grasp, we would have found it by now, right? We can send people to the moon. We can't find peace. I could go on and on, but I hope you understand my point. We, we cannot make what we need. And the second option that I mentioned is that God fixes us for us. Uh, yeah, so like God is in control, God is sovereign, God is boss, God is CEO of the universe. We sort of have to do what he makes us do, right? God, God could force us back. If he wanted, he could force us back. And again, let me demonstrate in balloon form. Don't worry, no popping. I think, I think this is what it looks like to think about God forcing us back. Let's see if I can actually tie a knot, hey? Probably not. Oh, that wasn't meant to be a pun. There we go. That's what I feel it looks like when God forces us back into relationship with him. Yeah, that works. Look, look at me. They came back. They love me. They love me. They are back. We're back together. They love me. Question. How often do love and coercion go hand in hand? Uh, I, I can imagine, you know, a bank robber. He's standing trial and he's in court saying, how am I at fault when the bank, tell, when the bank teller handed me the money? Like, how am I at fault? They, they gave me the money. And the lawyer might say, well, it wasn't exactly a willing transaction when you had a gun. Like, you know, look, he gave me the money. No, you forced him to give you the money. There's a difference. Look, they love me. They, they've come back. It doesn't seem in line with God's character either. So there is a third option. And, and I think this one is not as instinctive. And it's not the way that we think God would choose to go. Now, we remember that there is a consequence to moving away from the author of life. So when we walk away from life, what are we walking towards? We're walking away from life, we're walking towards death. That's right. When we walk away from life, we are walking towards death. And Ephesians 2.1 says, once you are dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. So there is a consequence. There is a consequence of walking away from God. We had perfect connection with God and experienced his presence, and then we rejected him. And now we are left with a broken relationship and broken, uh, a broken condition in us. So we have the consequence of moving away from life on our heads. Death, separation, loss. Isaiah 53, 6, again, all of us like sheep have strayed away and we have left God's path to follow our own. But there is a second part to that verse. Yet the Lord laid on him, Jesus, the sins of us all. See, 
when we say that God is more than able, we believe this because God is more than able because only God is able. God, seeing the helpless state of humanity, stepped in. The only way for us to be rescued by something was something more than us to step into that space. So God, in the form of Jesus, stepped in. Our only hope was the very God that we rejected to help us out of the very mess that we created. And he did. Because in Jesus, we saw the judgment, the consequence of sin, and it was placed on God. What is the consequence of moving away from life? What is the consequence that Jesus took upon himself when he was nailed to that cross? But it is not the death of someone who deserved it. It was the death of the only person who never deserved it. And therefore, the only person who death had no power over. Death had no power over Jesus because death never had a claim on him. Death did not know his name. The hope of humanity in our lost and helpless estate is simply Jesus. The perfect life, the undeserved death, and the defeat of death is the only hope that we could ever have. God offers us an invitation to accept the work of Jesus, to accept the work of Jesus as our work. God offers us an invitation to accept the payment for sin by Jesus as our payment. God offers us the invitation to accept a restored relationship and a closeness to God and the presence of God in us. And when we are back in relationship with God, God does not just forgive us and deal with the punishment, but actually God works to restore us back to what we once were. We are, we are, we are not this, this thing here. We are these coming back into relationship with God. We are being restored to what we once were. God gives us the only thing, or God gives us a thing that only God can give. God gives us the power of his presence. God gives us what we are missing. And what we are missing is only ever going to be restored by God. There is nothing and no one else able to do what God can do for us. No one. More than able, actually I'll grip the worship team to jump on stage if they want and they can hide behind the balloons. More than able is more than just a catchy slogan for the year. It is a firm foundation that we can build our lives around. More than able because it has only ever been God who is able. More than able because we are simply unable to do what we need to do to rescue ourselves. More than able, because as creator and sustainer of this universe, God is able to do what he pleases. Miracles for us are not miracles for God. Transformation is not impossible with God. Restoration is not impossible with God. Healing is not impossible with God. Reconciliation is not impossible with God. It is when it is just us. When it is just us trying to replicate what only God can do, but not with our God. Are you ready to trust and obey God, the only God, who is more than able to rescue and redeem humanity? Are you ready to see what God is more than able to do in you? Are you ready to see what God is more than able to do in us and our community? If you want life, 
if you want true love, if you want true peace, if you want true freedom, yes, you can, you can settle for the version that you can make up on your own. But it is nothing compared to the real thing. And the real thing only ever comes from God. So when we say more than able, it's not just this rah-rah statement. We are acknowledging that we are humbling ourselves before the author of life and the Lord of creation. And that he alone is in charge.